As we come to the Word of God this morning, let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you that you are our food, our bread and our wine, the sustenance, Lord, that we need. We pray, Lord, that you would open your word today to us and that we might meet you there just as we will meet you at your table. Thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, this morning in the book of Acts, we are going on a journey. We are going to leave one place behind and we're going to go to someplace new altogether. Uh, In these first eight chapters, we've been in one place, Jerusalem. Now, we're leaving. We're leaving Jerusalem behind. And this is the first time we've gotten to do this in this book. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. The church is never going to be the same again. Last week, um, as we looked at Acts chapter 7, the end of Acts chapter 7, the beginning of Acts chapter 8, we saw how Stephen, uh, one of the seven proto-deacons in that church in Jerusalem, was martyred. He was killed because of his faith in Jesus. And we read this, but Acts chapter 8, verse 2, it told us what happened immediately after Stephen's death. It said, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, all the believers, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I know you all can picture this. Stephen's death is like a rock being dropped into a pond. And there's that initial splash. It's shocking. And yet there's the ripples that go out and out and out. The persecution was like that. There was the execution, the martyrdom. And that just spread outward from that one place in Jerusalem. And yet, as the believers fled that persecution, they were bold to preach the gospel, and thus the message went out with with them. Our passage for this morning, it picks up in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, and we're going to hear about one of the first major ripples to happen outside of Jerusalem. Before we turn there, though, we need to just get some context. There was about five verses that we skipped between last week's passage and today's passage. So I want to read those. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 8. It says, Now those who were scattered, the believers, they went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip, When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. Okay, so Philip, also one of these seven proto deacons from Jerusalem, he is undeterred by his friend and fellow servant Stephen's death. Right? He doesn't sit down. He doesn't shut his mouth. No, he just picks up and takes the message somewhere else. Now, like we we have almost every single week, we're going to reference Acts chapter 1, verse 8. What did Jesus say at the beginning of this book? Maybe the most important verse in the whole book. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. To date, the first eight chapters, they've just been in Jerusalem and Judea, right? But now, all of a sudden, boom, 
Philip becomes the first person recorded as preaching the gospel outside of Jerusalem and Judea in the region of Samaria, right? Samaria. Go deacons, right? They've got the first martyr and they got the first missionary. This is good stuff. Now, Samaria, as you probably know, is a border region to Judea, like a next-door neighbor. Um, but like it is with, with some next-door neighbors, um, not mine, of course. My neighbors are, are here this morning. We've got a great relationship. But, but like it is with some neighbor relationships, uh, it's a bit adversarial. There's some animosity there, right? All throughout the Gospels, we see Jews and Samaritans hating each other. Why is that? Samaritans, they shared a common ancestry with the people of Israel, the Jews. And that went way back to before the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities. The exile in Assyria in 722, the exile in Babylon in 586. And so they shared the same ancestors. More than that, they read from the same law of Moses, the same Torah. And they worshiped the same one God. However, they interpreted the law and history a little bit differently than the Jews. You see, they believed that they were the pure ones, that they were God's chosen people, and therefore they worshipped God in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. The Jews, however, believed that they were the pure ones. They were God's chosen people, and thus they, they worshipped in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Now, as a result, as you might expect, that the Jews believed they were going to be saved by a Jewish Messiah. Makes sense. The Samaritans believed that they were going to be saved by a, a Samaritan Messiah. Now, here's why that's important. When Philip arrives in Samaria to preach the gospel to the Samaritans, we should expect that they would be even more ticked off about Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, than even the Jews were, right? Because for the Jews, at least Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. For the Samaritans, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't believe in a Jewish Messiah. We're expecting a Samaritan Messiah. And yet, surprise, surprise, the Samaritans believe. The Jews were literally killing Jewish Christians. And the Samaritans are welcoming them. Wow. Now Luke, as one for irony, as we saw last week, he just loves to point this stuff out. Now we should notice that in order to embrace Jesus as their Messiah, the Samaritans had to lay some things down. The Jews had to, the Samaritans will too, just like you and I do. The Samaritans had to lay down their visions of a Samaritan Messiah, right? Jesus wasn't and would never be a Samaritan Messiah. He was Jewish. They had to lay down this idea that they were pure and that they just didn't need help from anyone outside of Samaria. And what we'll find in this passage for today is that they also had to lay down much of their cultural baggage, and idolatry. Today we're looking at Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. Let me ask you if you have a Bible, turn there and follow along as we go. I'm going to read this passage for us in portions this morning. We're going to start with verses 9 to 11. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time 
he amazed them with his magic. Okay, it's pretty clear that in this narrative we've got a protagonist by the name of Simon the Magician or Simon Magus. Let's do a little uh, bio on him. He's a Samaritan. He lives in the city of Samaria, in the region of Samaria. He's a magician, tells us straight up, right? Now, the ancients, what they meant by magician is not the same thing as we mean by magician. We mean someone who entertains us with tricks and illusions, right? Uh, Like David Copperfield or David Blaine, right? The ancients meant a sorcerer, a sorcerer, someone who practices black magic, especially as a way for power, as a way for personal gain. And so Simon is basically a a dark wizard. He's the the Saruman of Samaria, all right? I I coined that, okay? And as a part of, of this sorcery outfit, Simon, he's marketing himself as someone powerful. In fact, he comes off like a god. Verse 10 says that the people of Samaria said that Simon is, quote, the power of God that is called great, capital G. Now, this is why that's significant. The early church father, Justin Martyr, who lived in the early hundreds AD, so just on the the heels of the apostles, he himself was a Samaritan, and Justin actually writes about this guy named Simon. He says that all of his fellow Samaritans revered him. In fact, they, they gave this title, the great one, to the one they thought was the highest God. Whoa. So let's put this into perspective. Simon is a sorcerer who pitches himself as a demigod, and all the Samaritans revere him as the great one. In biblical terms, we would say that someone like this is satanic, right? That's what Simon is. And so what happens with this wizard, verses 12 to 13? But when they believed Philip... As he preached the good news in Samaria about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So evidently, the the preaching of Philip is so compelling that even Simon the wizard believes and gets baptized. He would have needed to see a power evident in Philip and in this man named Jesus more powerful than the powers that he had, right? The signs and the wonders that Philip was doing were causing him to be amazed. He who amazed others was now amazed by Jesus, the Jew. Let's continue in verses 14 to 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received, believed, the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So on behalf of the twelve in Jerusalem, Peter and John, they, they go down to Samaria, and they meet with the Samaritans who believed as a result of Philip's preaching. And when they get there, they they lay their hands on, we've seen that before, and they pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit just like they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Simon's there when all of this goes down, right? And while we have no reason to doubt, no reason at all to doubt that Simon's initial salvation 
is genuine. Yet, this is where things go wrong for him. All right? Verses 18 to 19. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. On the the socioeconomic ladder of Samaria, uh, where do you think that someone who is called the Great One would be? Top, middle, bottom. Top, right? Simon has used his career as the Saruman of Samaria in order to gain a very large fortune and a very large power base. And here, while he has believed the message of the gospel, he's even been baptized, he falls into a pretty big sin trap, okay? Essentially, Simon wants to become a power broker. He wants to become a Holy Spirit middleman. And what he does is he tells Peter and John that he's going to give them money if they will give him the power, the rights, to distribute the Holy Spirit in his territory. It's like a franchise, right? (laughs) Now, on the one hand, we need to recognize that what Simon does is a serious offense against God. What God gives is free. It's free. It's not for sale. You can't buy it. And God gives his gracious gifts to whomever he chooses. So humans don't get to use that power or that grace for their own personal gain, right? What Simon does here is so notable um, that an entirely new word is created in his honor. Simony. Simony. Definition. The buying or selling of church positions, privileges, or sacred things. It's pretty harsh to have a crime named after you, right? Now, I, I don't think that's really any more fair than it is for us not to name our daughter Sapphira. But nevertheless, this was a big deal, what Simon did. First of all, because of who Simon is and was. Simon's the great one. He is the most powerful man in Samaria. And what does that kind of person wield in terms of influence? A lot of influence. And therefore, Simon's bad influence would go a long way. But second of all, the nature of that sin would have had catastrophic effects on the preaching of the gospel. If God can be bought and sold for humans to use at their own pleasure, the legs of the gospel would be cut out from underneath it because who wants that crap? Who wants that? There's a million people out there selling that kind of garbage. And so this is why we see the apostles be so harsh with Simon. Listen to what they say in in verses 20 to 21. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That's that's hard on the ears. I I feel for Simon. And Peter makes it really clear that Simon's offense is not uh, something just merely trivial, right? And yet, on the other hand, we should at the same time recognize that this makes perfect sense for Simon to try and do perfect sense. Presumably, for Simon's entire life, he has seen the world through the lens of sorcery and supernatural powers, which can be gained 
for his advantage. He's been super successful. He's the great one, right? And so just because Simon has believed the gospel and been baptized, it doesn't mean that that worldview is going to change overnight, right? It's perfectly understandable that we would see Simon absolutely willing to offer the money he has for the power of the Holy Spirit, just like he's done with whatever powers that be are out there. Simon is simply acting in ways that are still shaped by sin and the world instead of shaped by the gospel. And yet, despite this really harsh rebuke, From Peter and John, what do we see them say to Simon at the end? They say in verse 22, repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. They didn't say go to hell. They didn't kick him out. They didn't write him off. Yes, they speak a very sharp word to him. But sometimes when you have really, really hard soil, only a sharp blade will till it. See, Peter and John, they had followed Jesus around for three years. Three years they were with Jesus. And in that time, we know of several instances where they themselves received a sharp word. They got rebuked. Peter had been told, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) that's that's like so much worse than what Simon gets from Peter, right? And yet there's another time that sticks out in my mind. Listen to what Luke tells us in his gospel. Luke, the same writer of Acts, chapter 9, verse 51 to 56. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, to ascend, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, to the cross. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people in that village did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Perhaps this incident in Luke's gospel is the last time that some of Jesus' disciples were in Samaria. And when they were not welcomed by that Samaritan village, what was their first thought? Fire and brimstone. Forget the Samaritans. And Jesus rebukes them. You see, the Samaritans don't need to be destroyed. They need to be converted. They need to be converted. And that's what Jesus was on his way to the cross to do. So here's what we have to recognize. If if Jesus' own disciples had to learn this new kingdom of God worldview, even after three years with Jesus, don't you think it would take Simon some time to learn it as well? Simon's not a villain any more than Peter and John are villains. He's an infant. And we shouldn't expect that baby Christians should act like adult Christians any more than than Jonathan and Sarah's uh, new baby Gilbert should act like Jonathan. It doesn't work that way. 
And so Peter and John, they tell Simon to repent of his sinful motives and to pray for forgiveness. And in verse 24, what we see in Simon is the mark of a Christian, a contrite heart. Verse 24, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Once again, in this passage, we see just like we've seen time and time again that God takes what is a potentially explosive situation. Simon's a big deal. This could have gone sideways really quickly. God takes a potentially explosive situation and turns it out for good. Turns it out for good. Peter and John, they, they, they don't let Simon's simony tempt them. Right? They're not going to take money for religious services. And Simon, the most powerful man in Samaria, continues to repent and becomes an ally for the gospel. Wow. And Luke is sure to let us know that things have come to a positive end by telling us in, in verse 25, now when Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Clearly, we can't walk away from a passage like this without seeing a clear warning against simony, right? We need to understand that the kind of God we're dealing with is not a God who can be bought and sold, right? He's too big for that, and we are too small. You can't buy salvation. Your offerings to God, they're not for services rendered to you. You cannot set up a Holy Spirit franchise. This stuff matters. But more broadly speaking, in the context of the book of Acts as a whole, I think there's something even more important here for us to notice. There's something here in this passage about the nature of conversion. The nature of conversion. You see, Simon is not from the people of God. He's outside. He doesn't think he is, but he's a Samaritan. The Samaritans were on the outside. And so for Simon to receive the gospel is something new. Something new is happening than just when Jews received their awaited Messiah. Simon gets converted. Conversion is what happens when we repent and believe the gospel. We get changed. Right? We, we accept Christ as our Lord and we seek to follow him with our lives. And so we often talk about conversion as a past event. We converted to Christianity. Right? Jesus converted me. Christy and I, we, we lived in, in Birmingham, Alabama for about eight years. And at one time, uh, Birmingham was the, the steel-making capital of the United States. To make steel, you take some iron ore, and then you put it in a blast furnace, and then you throw in some carbon, and voila, you've got steel. That's a conversion. You had iron, and now you've got steel. And when that conversion takes place, there's just no doubting what the steel is. It's steel, right? You don't go back. It's just steel. In a similar way, our conversion, our spiritual conversion, it is a point in time. There is a point in our lives when we say yes to Jesus, finally. And many times that coincides with our baptism or with our confirmation. 
And when it happens, there is no question about who we are. We're believers. There's been a conversion. And yet, at the same time, because we are not static elements like iron and steel. We are dynamic and living creatures with free will. Our spiritual conversion is not simply a one and done. Conversion is also a process. It's a process. And throughout the New Testament, we get the picture of salvation as something that is ongoing, especially when we see the word sanctification. You see, the worldview of Jesus and of his kingdom is something that takes time to learn. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Christians have an old self. It's an old way of thinking, an old way of feeling, an old way of acting. But we also have a new self. A new way of thinking, a new way of feeling, a new way of acting. Conversion is, by God's Spirit, putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And that putting off and putting on doesn't just happen once. It happens daily. Daily. When Simon Magus first believed the gospel, he was converted. And yet clearly, he wasn't yet converted. In our discipleship to Christ, we we have to understand that believing the gospel and being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. Our conversion, our discipleship is ongoing. For Simon, when he fell into his old habits offering money in exchange for power, he was given the chance to repent, right? We should see that. And that's exactly what conversion requires, ongoing repentance. Ongoing repentance. Daily turning from our sin and turning to Christ. Now, on the one hand, it's discouraging that we have to do that. There are days I'd rather not pray the confession of sin. Right? And yet, how encouraging is it that repentance is always an option? God is never just done with you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if our ongoing repentance, if our daily repentance, if it is a truly a, a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ, then that conversion, it's also, it also requires something else. It requires ongoing transformation. Ongoing repentance and ongoing transformation. It means that we have to grow up. We have to grow up and leave our our infant ways behind. Yes, it takes time, but it must happen. And so discipleship is a journey of ongoing repentance and ongoing transformation. Today, I think in reading this passage, as we see this conversion process happening in the life of Simon the magician, I think that we should be right to to ask ourselves two questions in response. Number one, 
What sinful ways of thinking and acting and feeling do I still need to unlearn? What are they? God, would you show me? But secondly, what new Jesus ways of thinking and feeling and acting do I still need to learn? Please show me. These are, these are discipleship questions. These are conversion questions. Back in, in, in 2019, Christy and I were, were hiking in South Mountain, and we were by ourselves. We don't get to do that very often. But we did have a babysitter, I think, and we were able to do some hikes that we don't normally get to do with younger children. And so we climbed up to uh, one of the, the peaks, and on our way back down to the parking lot, we decided we'd go off trail a little bit and, and hike down a wash. We wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't do that with our kids, I promise. Now, this, this wash, it's not like the ones that have a, a, a sandy bottom. This wash was over rock faces. So, it was, I mean, it's a little treacherous. And as we walked, walked along the wash, here's what we saw. The rocks on the side of the wash, it was kind of like, uh, you know, a tunnel. Uh, not fully covered, but a half pipe, all right? Um, the, the rocks on the side, they were black, like you'd expect granite in South Mountain to be. Black. Um, and, and really gritty. And yet, as we walked along the floor of the wash, uh, the, the granite was white and smooth. Now, we know this isn't two different kinds of rock. It's both granite because uh, about, you know, at the side of the, the wash, you could see the gradient between black to white. So how'd it happen? So you might imagine when it rains, and it doesn't rain very often, although, you know, the last couple of weeks it has, when it rains, the, the water pours down this wash. And the rock at the bottom of the wash, it gets, gets washed, right? But it takes more than one rain for something like this to occur, right? Something like this, this kind of conversion, it would have taken a rain after a rain after a rain, a wash after a wash after a wash, over and over and over and over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over, and over. I'm not going to go, you know, thousands, I promise. But you get the idea. And in the end, the change, the conversion, it's undeniable. We sing the hymn, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That is a past tense washing, but it's also a present tense washing. Our conversion, it's a point in time, and it's also a process. It's discipleship, and we have to see it as such. God is taking us on a journey of repentance and transformation. And it's all grace. And it's all Jesus. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your grace that you are never done with us. And that there is always hope for us to be remade. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of redemption. That you would take something old and discarded 
and turn it into something new and invaluable. May that work of conversion happen in us daily as we are made into your image, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ.